1896, a young and unknown magician named Harry Houdini was on the verge of giving up on his dreams of showbiz stardom and going home to work in the tie factory in New York City. Before that, though, he went on one last tour through the Canadian Maritimes provinces doing his beloved magic show before giving up for good. That Maritimes tour, though, would change Houdini's life. This is the second part of a two-part series on the Maritimes tour that saved Harry Houdini. In last week's episode, he toured New Brunswick, meeting a strange cast of characters who helped teach him the tricks that would later make him famous. Now, going to Nova Scotia to finish the final leg of this tour before he goes home to New York City to give up on his dreams and take a job working in a factory making men's neckties. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. Having finished up their tour in New Brunswick, Harry Houdini and his wife Bess were now headed to Halifax, which was their tour leader, Marco the Magician's hometown. Many artists at that time found that Halifax was the worst city to perform in the Maritimes. One actor, with the King Handley Company, complained to the New York Mirror that On this round globe of ours, we fondly hope and steadfastly believe there's no such dull, unprogressive dormouse of a town as Halifax, Nova Scotia. At the time, the dour industrial seaport of Halifax seemed to always be covered in heavy smoke from its factories, relentless rain, and gray fog. Apparently, it didn't stop raining once in the entire two weeks the Houdinis spent in Halifax. Halifax had a notorious criminal underworld back then. It was filled with thieves and the city was prone to violence at the best of times. Entertainment-wise, Marco the Magician and the Houdinis found that they would be facing stiff competition while they were performing their month-long residency in the city. The day after they arrived, a massive circus came to town. An astonishing 21,000 Haligonians gathered in the rain to watch the circus parade through their city. There was a heavy police presence, with officers posted on every corner during the parade. Because, years before, using a different circus parade as cover, a gang had robbed a downtown bank during a parade. The Houdinis quickly discovered that Halifax was in a state of absolute chaos that summer. Even by the standards that chaotic city was accustomed to. A new set of underground pipes were being laid, and workers would blow up parts of the ground on main downtown streets right in the middle of the day, even as people were sitting around on summer patios and restaurants. The explosions would send dirt and stones flying everywhere right on the main streets of the downtown, even smashing windows of businesses on the main drag. That summer, there was also an exciting new fad called striking, where bicycle riders would race down the steepest downtown streets at full speed, leading to people walking the streets to have to jump out of their way before getting hit by a barreling biker. 
As soon as they arrived in Halifax, Harry and Bess Houdini went for a walk. They were greeted by witnessing a wild chase as the police on foot raced after a thief. The thief was a local petty criminal named Walter Townsend who had stolen $5 from a little girl and was now being chased through the city by the cops. The Houdinis watched the police and the criminal racing through the packed downtown streets past restaurants and cafes. The police caught the thief outside of a restaurant and proceeded to beat him up on the sidewalk as a crowd of diners inside of the restaurant all cheered and the Houdinis looked on in astonishment. Welcome to Halifax. Unable to afford the fancy hotel in Halifax, which at the time was simply named the Halifax Hotel, Houdini checked into Charles House Hotel on Hollis Street, which is actually still standing today. It was certainly not the finest hotel in the city, but at least it had a unique upside that most of the city didn't at the time. It smelled good. It was right around the corner from the Moyers Candy Factory, and the air around that area was said to always smell like caramel. Aside from the commotion of watching a thief getting beaten up, the Houdini's first day in Halifax was actually pretty nice. It was Natal Day, which was a holiday, and it brought in large crowds for the show that Marco the Magician and the Houdinis played. That day was also the Houdini's second wedding anniversary. The couple, him 22 years old and her 19 years old, had a whirlwind love at first sight meeting, followed by, three weeks later, their wedding. To celebrate their second wedding anniversary, they strolled around Halifax waterfront, bought some strawberries, and ate them in the gardens in the rain. It seems like things were going well in Halifax. And then the next day, not so much. It was election day, the 1896 Canadian federal election. Local boy Sir Charles Tupper, former Premier of Nova Scotia, who was then the current Prime Minister of Canada, was against a hotshot young newcomer from Quebec, Wilfrid Laurier, who was running for the Liberals. Nova Scotians thought it would be a landslide victory for their local boy. I mean, they were half right, it was a landslide. But well, it's not Charles Tupper's face on the Canadian $5 bill today, now is it? Elections were always a chaotic time in Canada back then, but this one was particularly so because not only did Charles Tupper lose, and lose badly, he actually refused to concede. In fact, he actually refused to step down as Prime Minister at all. And not only did he refuse to step down as Prime Minister, Tupper kept on issuing orders as if he were still Prime Minister, and people just sort of, kind of quietly stopped following them and ignored him. Even a certain recent American ex-president, who didn't want to leave, didn't go that far. So how's that for a little bit of Canadian awkward history that we sort of collectively pretend didn't happen? Amidst all of that election chaos, the very next day, seemingly oblivious to the tense mood gripping not only the city of Halifax, but the entire country of Canada, Harry Houdini showed up with a gaggle of reporters at the police station asking to see the chief of police. He hadn't made an appointment or informed the chief that he was planning on using their police station as a stage for a media publicity stunt to try and advertise himself. Despite his remarkably tone-deaf timing, Houdini got lucky because 54-year-old Chief of Police John O'Sullivan, who was an enormously tall, gray-haired Irish immigrant who was normally rather stern in the consummate professional 
policeman happened to have a weakness for the performing arts. Chief of Police loved the theater. He often personally guarded the Halifax Academy of Music on big nights to keep the audience safe. Although many people suspected this was just a ploy to get free tickets. The Chief of Police was fascinated by a short little New Yorker standing a mere 5 feet 5 inches claiming he could escape the Halifax police's finest handcuffs. Gamely, Chief O'Sullivan put a set of normal handcuffs on Houdini. It took the magician 32 seconds to escape. Now he was definitely interested. The chief of police put three pairs of handcuffs on Houdini's wrists and then he handcuffed the handcuffs together with a fourth set. Houdini turned his back to work on to do the trick. It took him two minutes to get all four pairs of handcuffs unlocked. Now, thoroughly fascinated by this strange saga unfolding before him, Chief O'Sullivan went away to his office and returned with a massive set of ancient handcuffs from the British Navy, which the Halifax Herald newspaper described as The old ones used in days long ago. As the reporters watched on, Houdini struggled with the strange ancient handcuffs. The Morning Chronicle newspaper wrote that the chief's challenge bothered him considerably. While the Acadian Reporter newspaper wrote, Houdini said he had never been so badly shackled before. Harry Houdini needed a clue. He asked Chief O'Sullivan how the strange ancient locks worked. After the chief explained the locking mechanism, it took Houdini two and a half minutes to figure out how to open it, even though the chief was still holding the key. Chief O'Sullivan gave Houdini the handcuffs as a souvenir, and for decades later, what Houdini called the Nova Scotia leg irons trick would remain a major part of the acts that he performed all over the world. After that, in front of the reporters, Houdini asked the chief of police to strip him down to his underwear and to lock him in a prison cell in the police station's basement and to leave him there and he would escape. Now, the Halifax papers covered this next trick in detail. I could read quotes from those, but I've got one better on this one. Harry Houdini actually wrote his own news article pretending to be a reporter for the Halifax Chronicle newspaper, and he sent this longer and significantly more embellished article to other newspapers back in the United States, which they in turn published as a way to promote himself. So here is a quote from Harry Houdini pretending to be a reporter writing about Harry Houdini's escape in the Halifax police station. The title for the article that he wrote about himself was A Slippery Prisoner A strange young man was arrested this morning by officers Pring and Killen at the instigation of manager Clark of the Academy of Music who claimed the stranger was a dangerous criminal. After being brought to police headquarters, Chief O'Sullivan securely handcuffed and shackled his limbs together, producing a pair of recently purchased double lock handcuffs. Join the leg shackles and handcuffs together. It certainly appeared as if the prisoner was secured. Nevertheless, five minutes after, the chief, wishing to question the unknown man, sent for him while the startling feat became known that the prisoner had escaped handcuffs, shackles, and all. As the only exit from the cell led through the chief's office, it is certainly a mystery how the prisoner had escaped. 
Chief O'Sullivan was in a quandary when a messenger boy entered and delivered a neatly done up parcel addressed to the chief of police. On being opened, the parcel was found to contain handcuffs and shackles, which were linked together like a huge chain and also contained a card with the inscription, Compliments to the Mysterious Harry Houdini. Good for one box at Academy of Music. Come and see a good magician. Aside from the obvious parts that Harry had exaggerated, the factual difference with the Halifax News reports was that instead of sending a note, Houdini actually phoned the chief of police from the hotel asking for his clothes back. Which begs the question what, if anything, Houdini was wearing as he went down the streets. The future world-famous magician running down the streets of Halifax in his underwear would have been quite something. Also omitted from Houdini's article, mentioned by the real newspapers, was that during the time of his escape, while everyone in the police station was distracted, Walter Townsend, that guy who got tackled in front of the Houdinis for stealing $5 from a little girl, actually did a real jailbreak and got out of the prison while the police had been busy with Houdini's tricks. Although Houdini's time in Halifax seemed to get off to a fantastic start, with the newspapers brimming and positive press about him, the very next day he was instantly forgotten when another magician came to town. Herman the Great was then considered the most famous magician in the world, compared to Marco the Magician and Houdini, they were just cheap knockoffs. Even worse, Herman the Great was in Halifax for a full four-week residency. Things got worse. Completely overshadowed, the beleaguered theater company performed to audiences only a fraction the size of even St. John's meager audiences. Meanwhile, their touring expenses for hotels, printing, advertising, meals, and paying employees mounted. Marco the Magician was desperately struggling to pay his tour's bills. While he was still paying the Houdinis and his little crew of three stagehands, unbeknownst to them all, Marco the Magician was racking up huge debts. In the middle of their sparsely attended shows, Right in his own hometown of Halifax, Marco the Magician's performance was interrupted by police officers mounting the stage. Right on the stage, right in the middle of his show, right in his hometown of Halifax, Marco the Magician was arrested for non-payment of debt and was told by the police that his magic company was being shut down. Even worse, the police were seizing all of the crestfallen magician's gear to pay his debtors. Marco the Magician hung his head as the police led him off the stage, still wearing his bright red outfit and his long black cape with a large popped collar. Harry Houdini later said that this specific moment was the lowest point in his whole life. It seemed that no matter how hard he tried, everything he did ended in failure, so he decided to quit. If he was looking for a sign to give up on his dream, seeing the man who gave him his last chance to make it in show business arrested on stage as he performed was about as clear as he was going to get. So he decided it was finally time to give up on his dreams of making it in show business, go back home to New York City, and get a job working in the factory making men's neckties. He later said that he even went so far as to actually try to sell his own beloved magic show equipment to someone in Halifax. And even then it didn't work out for him because that person turned him down. Nobody even wanted his magic equipment. 
So Harry and Bess Houdini packed up to go back to America. Back to a life in the old tie factory. But as they were in their hotel room packing up, Harry Houdini received a postcard. It was from the washed up but once great aged and forgotten magician Harry Houdini had met in St. John earlier in the tour, Samri Baldwin. The postcard simply read, Your work is so cleverly done that you perhaps will succeed where others have failed. Harry would hold on to that postcard for the rest of his life. Harry and Bess discussed it, and they decided to delay the return to America. Not for good, mind you, just for a little bit. They had one last thing to do. Two, actually. The tour of the Maritimes that Marco the Magician had booked and invited them on when they were stranded and penniless in New England still had two dates left on them. These tour dates were coming up in only a couple days, and they were in Dartmouth. With Marco the Magician now bankrupt and in jail, all of his magic equipment seized by creditors, he obviously wouldn't be performing the two remaining shows that were booked. But Marco had been good to the Houdinis. He'd given them a job and he helped them when they were bankrupt and stranded in New England. They wanted to repay the favor. They decided the show must go on, and they would play those final two shows of the tour in Dartmouth. So they took the ferry across the harbor to Dartmouth. Even though it was a clear, windless day, Harry still managed to get seasick anyways, once again throwing up over the railing, even on the short little trip across the harbor. If Halifax was rough back then, well Dartmouth was rougher. The Houdinis would have been greeted at the ferry by what the police complained were chronic loafers who made it their life's duty to hang around the Dartmouth ferry from dawn to dusk. The ferry would have been greeted by the then rather infamous smells of Dartmouth. Drying fish, burned sugar from the refinery, acrid industrial smoke, all mixed with the strong smell of soap from the nearby soap factory. The two final shows of the tour were booked at the St. Peter's Catholic Church on Maple Street. Their performances were sponsored by the Catholic Total Abstinence Society. It was just Harry and Bess now. They had no stage crew to help them out, and they had very little equipment. They went out into the streets of Dartmouth, and they hired up some young boys they found hanging out to help them build the stage and to get set up for their shows. One of the boys was John Martin, who would grow up to become a historian and a local author. He later recounted that as well as paying him and his friends to help set up the stage, Bess and Harry Houdini also asked them where to find the most prominent people in all of Dartmouth. The young boys thought about it, and they brought them the names of what, in these young kids' mind, was the most important people in Dartmouth. One was a local police officer, and the other was the town dog catcher. The Houdinis offered to bring those two most prominent men in all of Dartmouth on stage as part of their act, if those two men helped promote their show. On Monday evening, Harry and Bess Houdini stepped out onto the stage at Dartmouth St. Peter's Church. It was a monumental night in their life, the first time as headliners on an international stage, and it was in Dartmouth. They walked out onto the stage and gazed across the room, and they found that the room was packed. It was a sold-out show. 
based on word of mouth from the Dartmouth celebrities and the little boys they'd hired, they sold out their first headlining international show. Decades later, one of those little boys who'd spotted the Houdinis in the street and were hired to set up the show, John Martin, the historian, mentioned his experiences at the show in a footnote of his book called The Story of Dartmouth. Houdini gave four performances here. One evening, Street Superintendent Bishop and Policeman Daniel Brennan found him hand and foot and then lifted him into a trunk which was securely roped and locked. The men hauled the trunk behind the right wing and retreated. My eldest brother tending the curtain at left wing says no one else was in sight. Houdini's lady assistant advanced towards the footlights and clapped three times with her hands. At the third clap, Houdini walked out on stage. The sold-out shows in Dartmouth were a big moment in Houdini's career, encouraging the young man to not give up on his dreams and go back to New York City to work in a factory making men's neckties, after all. While it would make a nicer story to tell you that Houdini went right from his Dartmouth success to become an international superstar, life isn't really that linear, and there were still more ups and downs to come. Encouraged by their sold-out shows in Dartmouth, they tried to book another show. But the church in Dartmouth was already booked for what was a guaranteed sell-out show in Dartmouth. A pie-eating contest. So they lengthened their stay in the Maritimes, booking themselves new shows in places like Spring Hill and Truro. But once again, they encountered the small crowds they had before their big Dartmouth triumph. After the shows were done, they went home to America. Soon after, they received a letter from Samarin Baldwin, who they'd met in St. John. The White Mahatma was doing a comeback tour. He wanted the Houdinis to open for him. This would finally be the big break, playing in front of the big audiences and larger venues. But then at the last minute, Baldwin got sick, and the tour got cancelled. While they were probably disappointed by the news, it would have been lightened after the ups and downs they'd survived on their Maritimes tour. Undeterred by Baldwin's sickness, the Houdinis did their own little tour through the American Midwest. It was much smaller than the big theaters they would have played to if Baldwin hadn't gotten sick, though. They played in tiny bars, often for a little as a dime per show. But during this tour in Minnesota, of all things, almost exactly one year after their career low in Halifax and after that career high point in Dartmouth, a famous promoter happened to catch their show in some tiny little dive bar. After the show, the promoter approached Houdini. He told him that if he dropped the little card and coin tricks that he was doing at the time, and instead focused on the escape acts with the handcuffs and the straitjackets that he'd picked up in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, respectively, then the promoter would take him on. Harry Houdini agreed, and almost immediately, after well over a decade of relentlessly pursuing his dreams, despite all the failures and the setbacks, the disappointments and the dejections, the dismissals and the rejections, he became an overnight smash sensation all over the world. Four years later, Harry Houdini was being carried down the boulevards of Berlin by an enormous cheering crowd of a particularly enthusiastic audience that he'd blown away with his magic show. In this moment of triumph, as he was being literally carried down the streets of a major European capital city, 
now as a bona fide international celebrity whose name was known in households all around the globe, he thought back to that disastrous tour of the Maritimes only four years earlier. That night, when he got back to his opulent and expensive Berlin hotel room, Houdini wrote a letter to some obscure and forgotten Halifax man named Michael Dooley. That letter Houdini wrote is lost, but Houdini held on to the reply he got back from Michael Dooley, who had once performed under the stage name Marco the Magician. That letter reads, Your letter expresses more gratitude to me than I deserve for what little favor I may have done for you. It shows what I knew all along, that you have a good heart and it is in the right place. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.